This episode of Fintech Insider is sponsored by Huel, the nutritional powdered food people. Jason and I absolutely love Huel. Often when we're slaying legacy and building some awesome propositions, we literally have no time to eat. I know that sounds crazy, but it is true. But we still want to be healthy and Huel is really good for this. Huel is quick, affordable, and a great alternative to grabbing yet another crappy sandwich, or worse, skipping meals entirely. And luckily for us, it only takes about 30 seconds to make. We throw a few scoops into one of the four blenders that David has bought since uh, becoming an, a Huel addict. I love the blend. What can I say? <laughs> add the powder to the water, add a little bit of ice and a couple of bit of flavoring. And it has all of those essential vitamins and minerals that just keeps you going through the day. Unlike some other supplements that I've tried before, it tastes really good as well. I think my favorite right now is probably either the matcha tea one or the banana one. I kind of throw a double espresso in one of those bad boys and you are good to go with something pretty special. You're becoming like a Huel ninja with your flavorings. I'm just, I, I just do a bit of ice, uh, espresso occasionally, a bit of dark chocolate, and I am set. It's got that mocha thing to it. Huel are completely transparent about the nutritional information of their product. So if you want to learn more, head over to www.huel.com. And even better, we've got an exclusive £10 discount code from your first order just for you, our FinTech Insider listeners. Head to my.huel.com slash fintech, enter your email, and you'll get a discount code for £10 off. Huel have never done this before with anybody, so get in there quick and claim your discount today. Huel, it's our kind of fuel. Did you just, like, invent a tagline for I did. I know I did do that. I don't think you meant to do that. We'll see what happens. From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up, Uber's concealed data hack, Tencent surpasses Facebook in valuation, and Revolut's founder says that traditional bankers can't take the heat. All this and more on today's show. We are here. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London Oldgate. My name's Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues. Jason, say hi. Hi. David, say hi. Hello. Uh, Jason, tell me a little bit about what you've been up to this week, please, sir. Uh, all kinds of phenomenally interesting proposals, actually. It's been a week of having great conversations and then coming back to think, how are we going to create that proposition or deliver against it? So lots of deep thinking, thought, work, people, uh, ton of stuff. Really, really good week. David, how about you? Um, busy building a bank. So, you know, finally, I went second. I think I win with that one, right? So, like, uh, yeah, when we're not doing that, recruiting a bunch of people because we're just expanding out our rate and not. So keep your eyes on 11FS forward slash careers, please. Living that recruitment life. Uh, as for me, I've spent this week writing a couple of proposals myself uh, and getting involved in delivering some work around open banking and PSD2. So it's been a lot of fun, an awful lot of fun. But enough about us. Because, you know, it's not here for just us. We have some excellent guests, as always. Uh, this week, we're joined by Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief at Fintech Finance. Alex? No, Alex? Ali, how are you? <laughs> I, 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 see how I changed your name? It's actually, I'm going to throw a little curveball here. My name's actually Alistair, yeah. but it's spelled in a ridiculously stupid way. Because, um, a little fact about myself, I'm born on the island of South Uist. I'm the only person to be born there in the last 35-odd years. Wow. And that's why my na I'm named, because it's a Hebridean name. 
reason I was born there is not a joke. My mum missed the boat to the mainland, so that's how I ended up uh, being born in uh, in South Uist. Wow, does that make, make you like the mayor or the, like... Do you, do you own that island? You should get a king crown and a scepter. And <laughs> I would quite like that. I think I should really, you know, I should send like a, a letter to the entire 20 people that live there and say, you know, where's my, where's my your, crown? Your people. Yeah, yeah my, 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 my people. So have we been offending you calling you Ali all this time? No, I, I always go by Ali. Plus it also, uh, it, it confuses Uber drivers as well when they pick me up. So I always go by uh, <laughs> Speaking of kings on islands, last time Valentina Christensen was on the show, we were talking about Oak North, and if there's if Jon Snow from uh, from Game of Thrones banked anywhere, it was going to be an oak from North. I did love that quote. That was yeah, <laughs> uh, and of course you were the star of our last After Dark event. How are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. I'm very glad to to be back. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a good week. Um, budget yesterday, lots of very interesting announcements, especially with the uh, the AI and tech uh, startup scene. I think um, two and a half billion British business bank funds so um, yeah very very exciting week cash money uh, Tanya Andresen did I say your name right yep uh, I don't think I did well editor of banking technology Tanya good to have you on the show uh, thank you very much thank you for joining us uh, let's get started with the news Okay, kicking off with one of the bigger stories that got people talking this week. Uh, Submitted to Fintech Insider News by Ninepine, Uber concealed a cyber attack that exposed 57 million people's data. Jason, what's the story here? Well, I think we're all probably getting a bit numb to numbers in the tens, if not hundreds of millions. You know, it just seems to be that story that comes out every week. And I'm interested in how long before it doesn't become newsworthy anymore, just because two or three or ten attacks happen, you know, every week. But this time, yes, Uber, which you might say, like, they're not Experian, they're not an old company, they're a modern tech company. So it's perhaps unusual or or surprising that they exposed 57 million people's data, including uh, 7 million drivers, 600,000 US drivers, um, license numbers, all kinds of data. Um, But perhaps worse is that they hid it, allegedly, and paid hackers I think it was $100,000, I read, to delete stolen data. Yeah, there was a quote from the um, UK's uh, data commissioner on the BBC saying, given the current climate around data security and breaches, it's astonishing that Uber paid off the hackers and kept this breach under wraps for a year. And, and somebody from McAfee was saying, by paying off the hackers, you're just funding what they're doing. Uh, but it's also sort of uh, a fairly common practice by the sounds of it that if, if Uber are doing it, they, maybe they're not the only ones. It was like, haven't you seen any, like, die-hard movie ever? I mean, you just don't negotiate with terrorists. I don't understand. And you suddenly don't admit it when you've actually negotiated with them. Because, as you said, you're just opening yourself up to, you know, other hackers in the future saying, okay, well, great, if we if we go ahead and, and threaten them. And I'm sorry, but, you know, to say, okay, well, we paid them 100K to delete the data, well... You know, how do you know they've deleted the data? I mean, there was another um, story in Channel News Asia, which was uh, uh, Singaporean um, customers who were saying that actually they were getting notifications uh, for rides that they hadn't taken um, in other parts of the world and also in other currencies. So, you know, it's, and if you Google, um, which my sister actually found, if you Google just uh, Uber phone number, you'll come up with like loads of people's uh, personal phone numbers. You wouldn't know who, it, who it's uh, belonging to, but it's... 
just shows. I would love it if Bruce Willis was the CEO of Uber. That, like the new <laughs> CEO does seem quite decent, but Bruce Willis would be better. Uh, but that that sort of impact of not disclosing it, we've seen, we've talked before about big banks when they get breached, they kind of disclose it, but they do it in this very corporate, we're not going to tell you anything sort of way. Uh, then there's a trend now towards uh, like some of the challenger groups when they mess up, they sort of give you lurid detail about it. There's There's a thing about communication here. I think what's going to be interesting is come May next year, when the general data protection regulations come in across Europe, GDPR, uh, and suddenly there are uh, requirements to report certain types of data breaches, how many are we going to start seeing? Because uh, you've got to assume that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that are either paid off or, or something happens, and now suddenly it'll be a legal requirement. I mean, I think that's going to be interesting. Come May, do we suddenly start seeing a whole load of these things happen? I can't wait for GDPR. I am planning on when GDPR comes into force, it will pay off my mortgage because <laughs> I'm every single company that you know I've ever ever done anything with, I'm going to be putting in a subject access request. If they can't get it to me, I get a hundred quid. So I do you know plenty of those and do the mortgage. <laughs> wow, there's so, there's an interesting idea. Subject access request. You heard it here first. It's the new PPI. This is a license to print will, money. Will there be adverts on the radio? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's going to be nuisance calls about this. Ali, it's all your fault. Well, so I mean that's the thing. The GDPR regulation says that if you don't report it within 72 hours, you have to uh, you could be fined up to 20 million euros or four percent of global turnover, which for Uber would be based on the most recent results, 219 million euros. And that's per. Um, breakage of it as well so that's actually how many people had their data breached so it's going to be 57 that, million so that figure times by 57 million so so then there'll be no more uber basically <laughs> you've got to protect your data now speaking of data breaches has anybody else had one of the letters from equifax i know you have jason because we were chatting about it but yeah. have, you, have you any of you guys so it was the letter basically saying whoops <laughs> sorry lost all your stuff um but to try and make it better Here's a few of our products you can now have for free, uh, which are meant to protect you for a certain period. So you get free 12... for a year. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like they're they're managing to almost flip it into like a BD thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like we lost all your data, but now have this thing to make you feel secure for a year, and then we'll charge you for it. Um, so it's a bit weird. But the fact that it was a letter through the post when they and everybody else has my email because they fucking lost it, they should have just emailed me. That was the thing. It was, it's daft, isn't it? it? There's something about that size of fine that says people probably took cybersecurity pretty seriously. But at the same time, cyber insurance policies have been quite cheap for some time. I think those premiums on cyber insurance policies, if these breach numbers <laughs> keep going up like they would under GDPR, really need revision because cyber insurance is, is insanely cheap. Tanya, did you have any thoughts on this? Well, everything has been covered, but I wanted to kind of point out that the saving grace, I guess, if you can call it saving grace of Uber, was that the CEO and a lot of the team is new. So they're like, oops, but it's not our fault. Blame the guys that are not here anymore. Well, and then, of course, the security, the chief security officer is very quickly gone. But everybody else, they can say mistakes were made, but they're in the past and it wasn't us who made them. So, you know, kind of how to put at least some kind of positive spin on a really horrible situation. So it, was, it was what politicians do. Oh, it was the last yeah, lot. Yeah. yeah. Although, a big, you know, a big data breach takes the heat off the sort of sexism and cultural problems a little bit, doesn't it, for, for at least a couple of weeks. At least so. that's a new problem. <laughs> yeah, or it just reminds you of all the problems that they have. I mean, it's, you know, it's like been... 
in some way a bit of kind of PR crack, don't get me wrong, it's really nice to like read these headlines and be thinking about what on earth the in-house team doing. It must be really exciting. But at the same time, obviously, if you're a shareholder or any, any other kind of stakeholder in the company, it's, it's obviously quite uh, quite nerve-wracking to continue Five to see Five years ago, big tech were the darling, weren't they? They were. It was like everybody wanted to be the big tech company. Everybody wanted to work at the big tech company. And slowly but surely, you've got Facebook being accused of the, not managing fake news properly and, and data issues there. You've got the things happening now with Uber. It's, it's funny to me that they took the spot um, from oil companies in 2005 as being the world's biggest companies. And now they've kind of taken the spot of being evil too. And like the don't be evil and don't suck. Um, so maybe you get so big and you can't help it. What's going to happen then? So it's like everybody wanted to be the Uber of. Everybody wanted to be Facebook. Everybody wanted to be like Google. But so like what are Tesla going to do to like fuck up that crown type thing? Is it going to, it turns out like they're not battery powered. It's driven on the tears of young people. That's what it is. And everybody will turn again. But that's why Elon's got his go to Mars strategy. So because he'll be off the planet. Yeah, he straight won't out. Care. Yeah, gone. He is literally getting his ass to Mars. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, underground. Uh, the boring company hats are selling really well, apparently. <laughs> um, so from a security hack to increased security through biometrics, there's an article on bank innovation uh, submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Sophie Winwood. The headline here is BBVA are going to launch a mobile iris scanner through a partnership with Samsung. And this is the um, Samsung's iris recognition feature is a suite of biometric tools uh, from Samsung Pass, which apparently eradicates the need for the phone's password or lock code. No official launch date yet, I'm assuming, but this doesn't say it's only Samsung devices, which is uh, which is quite a lot. But I just I just don't know if an iris scan is... It, how close do I have to hold the phone to my face for this thing to work? I want to see it in action. I don't know if anybody else had thoughts on this. Yeah, it's a bit... I mean, we've talked about it before as well. It's a bit innovation theatre. I mean... You know, I, I, it's like sort of trade up between increased security versus, you know, ease of access. I mean, I use my fingerprint to get into my Monzo app or my first direct app. It's, it's pretty easy. It's pretty secure. I don't really think, as you say, I need to sort of take a selfie or scan my iris or do whatever else you might need to do next to get into your into your phone or into your, into your banking app. I, I think the thing people forget about security is it's not just actually securing the process. It's actually like making people feel secure as well. And I think this is when I sort of see a lot of the feedback about the iPhone X, iPhone 10. Which one is it? Jeremy Burge said it was 10. All right, we'll go with him. Jeremy knows his stuff, doesn't he? So He's, a, he's an authority on many things, Indeed. including emoji. Indeed. But um, so, the, yeah, with the iPhone 10, it's not the fact that actually it's less secure or more secure. It's the fact that do I feel like I'm actually in control of that security mechanism and the process of doing it? So like a pin, I'm actively partaking in my finger doing a thing or my finger being on this thing. Because even like Touch ID, I felt I feel sometimes I do it by accident and unlock whatever it is in my phone, you know, so. I remember one of our friends, uh, James Haycock, did some research on uh, security that he was telling me about uh, for banks. And there was this uh, question on how customers perceive a different level of security. And one of the results that came back was that when a PIN number or the spaces you would type the PIN number had padlocks on them, had just a visual of padlocks, customers felt that was more secure. And you kind of think, wow. But but, and there's, there's something about that for this it's like this is iris scanning i've only ever seen this on james bond and it, as long as it has that little fake green laser that looks like it's scanning my eye then i am in like that's secure but then somebody's going to cut out your eye right we've all seen demolition now <laughs> <laughs> but our minds are so easily deceived you know on 
also these projects, you know, for big banks like BBVA, you know, it's a part PR exercise in marketing, part to show how innovative they are. Part of it is genuinely, you know, trying to find new ways of interacting with customers and making their life easier. But for guys like that, like BBVA, if it doesn't work out and if there's not enough customer uptake, so what? You know, it's not going to put their life or, you know, budgets on the line. But do BBVA need innovation theatre? I think what I was going to bring up, I saw a, a great little buzzfeed of things that millennials are killing and not going to be have a have in the next few years. Passwords as top of the list because I, for me, I've got about eight passwords. They're all the same because it's easier to remember. And this uh, is again, that's, I think that's good to know, Ali. But that is why Ali, one, two, three. <laughs> Just about. It's well, it, it is as simple as that because I rely on things like the, the fingerprint login, the thumbprint login, because it's easier and. I think it's another step towards getting rid of the password. But passwords disappearing doesn't necessarily make you more secure. It, it, because a password is easy to steal, but when I take biometrics, I turn that into the equivalent of a password. I just take a picture of your thumb or, or however I've stored your thumb or your voice signature, and I turn that into a set of numbers, which is actually a key, and that key is stored in a database, and somebody could steal that key just as easily as they could steal your password. I don't have the technical know-how to do that, but if I could guess your password, then I can still get in. But, but like you say though it's it's not any more secure necessarily in terms of the the secure element but it increases the capability of getting through it from a customer's perspective the customer side i completely buy but like i can change my password i can't change my thumb sure but you don't lose your thumb and even if somebody stole your thumb print the it's the association to the password that the password being correct isn't it i think that's something that people well, get I, I think get wrong quite often on this stuff it's not like i've only got 10 chances of this and then i've got to start using my big toe to unlock my iphone type thing you know it's um, it's a bit more sophisticated than that but i think people uh, mistake or or mix up identification and authorization because actually biometrics are great for identification if you remember that story we spoke about a few weeks ago of the healthy kentucky fried chicken uh, store in china that essentially used face recognition to say oh that's jason and then i gave it my phone number which is essentially a, a kind of password in order to make the payment you know i think biometrics are great for identifying who you are but i agree that they're not great for authorization because i only have one face i only have one fingerprint and if actually you find a way of taking that and using it there's no way of changing it so i think that there's some subtleties there on biometrics for knowing who i am is one thing like using those biometrics to unlock you know a chaps payment or something that sends 50k forget it you know it's just not going to happen i think knowing that nuance is 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 important from a design perspective because David's point about it's really nice from a customer experience, and I think this was Ali's point as well, there's this lovely customer feeling of I'm just doing something that's really frictionless, really easy, and I understand it, and it doesn't feel like a password, which is super easy to, to take away and may have been hacked for a number of people in the past. But when you're designing it, there are these nuances, as, as Jason points out. Can I just point out my password is not Ali123 as well? You said that with a red face. Valentina. Yeah, I think it's just one kind of one point, sort of slightly unrelated, but I suppose, you know, you remember a few, um, maybe sort of a year ago or so, when uh, there was that sort of terrorist um, iPhone and there was that whole sort of debate between Apple and the CIA or the FBI about trying to get into it. Well, obviously now the likes of Apple um, and, and Samsung will have literally millions, billions of people's fingerprints and potentially then their, their you know, iris scan as well. And you actually think, well, maybe that could be a place where they could really, you know, share some Hold really on. useful information. I see where you're going. This is like, it's like Big Brother. 
Yeah, you could. I mean, if there was a, if, think about it. If there was like some kind of serious terrorist attack, you could just run that finger, you know, run some fingerprint through so the huge I think huge this was David's database. point a moment ago. I think my brain's just twigged what he actually meant. Um, so this is the point. See where you go with this. <laughs> <laughs> if it sounds intelligent, then yes. <laughs> so look, that took me a second, but Apple don't actually have those fingerprints. That was their argument back to the FBI. Yes, it's stored the on the device itself, and it's stored in a secure element. And secure elements are a, a key key part falls I believe it's called an enclave and, ooh, <laughs> we should we, an enclave sounds like it should have many games consoles in it but moving on to more technology well, before we do just on, on that so there, there was a story recently about a wife who suspected her husband of cheating on her and actually unlocked sorry it is on the plane Yes. I love this. So, so go on, go on, Ali. No, 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 no. I, I, can't, I couldn't possibly steal your thunder from this story. So, <laughs> so I unlocked his mobile phone when he was asleep using his finger and sliding on it to find it out. So actually, all of these things are technically making everything much more unsecure because actually your ability to do things when, when people are, you know, it's like pry your eye open while you're asleep or something. Might wake up on that one. But, uh, you know, just a fingerprint. Actually, it's actually it's making the customer experience better, but actually potentially making everything much more I can imagine unsecure. your kids doing that to you at some point. Yeah. You? Well, but when, and well, when you start getting face recognition in terms of the yeah, iPhone just X, it's the just, phone yeah, while I'm you were asleep, asleep in front of your face, yeah. there you go. Exactly. They, a lot of them do now have the liveness test where you have to look in different directions. You have to move the phone around. You have to... Yeah, but like if you're like, I'm snoring my head off at like three o'clock in the morning. I apologize, Sarah. I really do. I'm sorry. You're technically alive at I know. that point. Yeah, <laughs> and like, you know, moves it around a bit. Job's good and she's in. Sound like you're the undead, but you're technically alive. Um, next story on bank innovation. One thing you got to say about that plane story. She unlocked it with a thumb and proceeded to beat him up that the, that the people on the plane couldn't pull her off. The plane had to make a diversion and land in Mumbai. Because security came on and then were able to pull her off. No one on the plane could, could basically stop this woman beating up her husband. She found bad things. Yeah. David, you left out the best bit of the story. I'm sorry. I didn't want to get into Very the violence the part. I was in the security thing. Snore in your enclave, David. All right, next story on bank innovation submitted to fintinginsidernews.com by Sharon. Uh, Garmin goes live with contactless payments feature for latest smartwatch. Uh, anybody want to take a pop at this one? I'm super surprised that Garmin's still the thing. Like I didn't. I thought after like satnavs went pop type thing that they sort of went away. But it was it was quite interesting that they're still sort of trying to push forward on innovations in these spaces, don't you? Garmin Pay is the name of their thing, and it's now live on Garmin's smartwatch, the Vivo Active Three. Mm. You know, so they're keeping up with Apple's um, watch numbering strategy, at least. Indeed. Yeah, but then I know we've said before, I mean, it's the sort of, do people use Apple Pay? I do, um, but I know there's, you know, a very heated debate as to whether people actually use it. I mean, I, I was looking, um, so $95 billion uh, a year uh, in 2017 is, is what they predict uh, will be the, the amount in contactless payments, um, with 2% of those being through wearables. So that's about $1.9 And that's bearing in mind that you've got about $10 million people with wearable or 10 million wearables currently in the market and that that number is expected to increase to 70 million by 2021 so you could see then arguably you know much higher percentage than than just two percent but that is a fraction of a fraction of card transactions it's 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 still an incredibly small amount and i don't know if it's enough it's not catching on it's not caught fire and i just wonder why that is is anybody here wearing a watch is anybody here wearing a payments watch? Do you know what? I'm, I'm wearing an Apple watch that has had no charge for at least about 36 hours, but I just can't be asked to charge it up anymore. I'm just sick of having so many things to charge up. 
I'm, I'm, I've got a dead one in my bag at the moment. I don't wear it. Charging anxiety is a thing. It is. But we saw um, we saw Fitbit do the payments thing last week. Now we're seeing Garmin. It's interesting that we've got these sort of second tier wearable players in some respects now getting into that. Uh, I guess that hygiene factor of being able to do payments. that was a diss, wasn't it? Second tier, yeah. Like like Leicester are going to be next season. Simon even questioned the exist the, the existence of Garmin. Never mind them being second tier. That was me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Don't diss me. I know. Well, also not to forget, of course, all the luxury brands like Gucci mm-hmm. and the likes also launching their you know smartwatch range. But you know that's you know. But at least that is not targeted at the main market, right? Indeed. And it feels like product without demand. Like people keep pushing these products into market and nobody's using them. Maybe we're missing something. But Dave Birch, our good friend from Consult Hyperion, uh, always says that it's not about uh, the physical point of sale payments. It's about the in-app payments. Apple Pay, to his mind, is much more about that experience, the the in-app experience of everything becomes in-app. So you might... uh, Amazon and uh, what was the name of the company uh, that they acquired, the retailer? Um, Whole Foods. Uh, Amazon and Whole Foods, for example, you buy on Amazon and you get your Whole Foods delivered, but you pay with uh, Amazon inside that one. But for everything else, there'd be like an Apple Pay thing inside it or there'd be the Google version of it. But I think that works best at an an operating system level. So actually, whether it's Google Pay or whether it's Apple Pay, like because that's the only instances that I ever use Apple Pay is actually the sheet that flies up that uses my fingerprint or my face when I finally get my bloody phone delivered through the the post um, to to actually do that thing and make it easy, you know. So I, that makes sense, but I'm still not I'm still not sold on the physical thing. I'm sure we have this discussion like way too often. I think we just always need to go to the card journey. Really, isn't broken. It's not really a big problem to carry around a little piece of plastic that always works with everything. Is waterproof. Doesn't run out of charge. Is pretty ubiquitous across the planet end of next story i think i, I think i'm i think i'm sca- next I'm story still, no no next, no that's it no i'm still that's I'm done st- that's no, no, we finished that one I, I think if somebody chaperoned me doing it i, I think i'm i said last last time you i think i'm just chaperoned don't you i do so next time we've we, had this we've had this conversation next we've had this story no, but in about time, seven different ways in the last last year but next time we go on the bus okay if one of you guys are with me i'll try it but I'm not doing it on my own because I'm scared. I love, I love the implication that we go on the bus and that. <laughs> We're keeping it real. We even had this conversation with Sharon O'Dea telling you she did it on the bus and has all taken the piss out of her. But doing it on my own or doing it with somebody else is very different. I'm going to veto, like, whenever this story comes up again, I'm going to veto it with the Jason Says card journeys are not broken. You wait. Right. It's going to come up next week or the week after. This, this is the answer. Just another payment story for all those cap markets listeners and asset management listeners out there. We'll move on from payments <laughs> and we'll move on to a story from Reuters submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Fagan. Uh, Tencent are on a global path as it surpasses Facebook in valuation. So Tencent this week became the first Asian firm to enter the club of companies worth more than 500 billion US dollars and on Tuesday actually surpassed Facebook in market value which probably heats up the competition between WeChat and Alipay but also what about WhatsApp and WeChat there's there's definitely some like war for global domination here and apparently WeChat has 980 million active users this is really significant news any any thoughts on this one from the room 
Um, yeah, well, I recently um, finished reading the uh, the Alibaba story, and it was actually, I mean, it was written um, by the sort of first ever marketing hire, and it was very, very interesting to sort of hear about how they had actually listed on the the Chinese stock exchange uh, in, initially, and then it was only later on that they listed in the in New York uh, on the New York Stock Exchange, and that's sort of when the West woke up to the behemoth that uh, that was Alibaba, uh, and they sort of hadn't really realised that actually the the number of customers they had was the same as Amazon and eBay combined, and I think it's sort of the same thing with what you're seeing with, uh, with with Tencent and with WeChat versus, uh, you know, the, the WhatsApps of this world. It's sort of like, oh, my God, I did not realize that they have almost a billion people, uh, you know, using the, the messaging service. Have you seen the share price as well? It's like a Bitcoin price. It's just crazy. It's it's hockey stick stuff. But, but to be honest, if they've got 918 million active users and Facebook's only got, what, not even, not even half that, have they? No, their active users is somewhere just short of 2 billion. It's like 1.6. So Facebook have got 2 billion and WeChat have got 980 million and they're valued at the same amount? Yes, because WeChat has much more payments and they have a whole other ways of monetizing. Facebook monetizes primarily off advertising, whereas the interesting thing about both Tencent and Alibaba is their Amazon meets payments, meets Visa, meets all these other businesses rolled into one, meets asset management, meets a bank, meets wealth management, meets so, small so, business bank. It, that's why it's interesting. So, so why do we know Zuckerberg and like who runs Tencent? Who's the guy? Who's the guy or the gal? Like, I don't know. What Jack do mean- Ma from obviously Aunt, uh, Alipay is, and, and I'm pretty uh, sure the surname Alibaba. of the person who runs Tencent is also Ma. I'm pretty Ma sure. Ma Huateng. I'm, I'm now butchered his name, and we're going to get all kinds of calls. Yeah, on, yeah on James that. Lloyd, if you're listening, I'm so, also sorry. known as Pony Ma, which I love much. I like that. That's should why definitely I thought it was Ma name. Pony Ma. That's yeah. Why. There you go. Magnet, investor, philanthropist, uh, engineer, internet and technology entrepreneur. That sounds like those LinkedIn titles you're seeing these days where somebody's a guru, like uh, they they do all the things. Uh, I think this is significant as well because when you look at Africa and India's payment markets, both of the technology giants in the West and the East are really playing into there. And it's not just a payment story, but it's a banking story and an unbanked story. And there's giant markets that are are being looked at seriously by these... by these large players and actually there isn't a lot of banking for those customers so the banks aren't there they aren't serving those customers needs uh, whereas the 10 cents and the um Alibaba's of the world have experience changing a market and bringing people into a system with where the banks sit somewhere further in the background i think in the west the the technology companies haven't been as used to that uh, i think um i think the the you know 10 cents and the alipays the uh, alibaba's are much more embedded in financial services though right you know these guys have got such a head start on facebook you know like i don't think zuckerberg's really in the same league of understanding of financial services i agree when i look at the western technology companies they've they've really meddled and meddled and played around with payments and apple are arguably the furthest ahead and they're not very far not compared to these guys not even close the um like the facebook it wasn't meant to begin with to be some kind of financial services or payment company it just started as a social network so its roots are completely different and also the market is you know the western market and the eastern market are like two totally different things so what we are seeing with wechat is the rise of the super app that what you have the super app that can do everything pretty much right and it's coming that sort of thing is coming 
from the east and I think moving into the west and that's what Facebook and the rest are now trying to kind of introduce as well. I totally agree because to me WeChat is more like an operating system than it is an app. You know while it might sit next to Facebook and WhatsApp and everything else ultimately it was an operating system. It was an app that other apps sat on and therefore whether you had an Android phone or an iPhone actually you used WeChat uh, in order to access a whole variety of services. It was a proxy operating system. It was a different level. So ultimately, they won. I mean, they just delivered something that actually that really gobbled up a variety of services and made these apps within an app. And then they had such bargaining power, they couldn't, uh, Apple couldn't uh, hard, you know, push them off of the, uh, uh, the platform because of how successful they were. Um, so on one hand, you, you see that they've just dominated being that, the equivalent of Apple and Android in one territory. Uh, but the question is, does that really translate elsewhere? It's a bit like pointing at some of the mobile payment ecosystems uh, in Africa and go, or oh, they're just going to gobble up the world. But actually, there's something different about uh, how uh, how WeChat's evolved that I don't think makes it on um, in aggregate a threat to the West. But the amount of money that they've got and the amount of investment and, and things that they can do does. So I, I don't I don't see WeChat sort of storming across Europe and the US, but the amount of, of money and expertise and staff and the digital ex- expertise they have could very much could very much. Yeah, do. you can learn from them, Tanya. That's a really good point. And I think that learning from them and also where they are and have a massive business, but they are also now a regional player. Uh, on Singles Day recently, on as we as was mentioned on the last FinTech Insider News show, that there were a lot of transactions happening in Singapore and South Korea, and so so this is becoming a regional phenomenon. And whether or not they can take that elsewhere has always been the question about Chinese companies. Can they really? break out of Asia Pacific and, and get into to other markets. Uh, next story uh, on e-financial careers. The former Credit Suisse trader is hiring 25 people a month for his fintech startup that says bankers can't hack it. Jason, another Revolut story. Yeah, amazing. And I, I kind of think now that when people go and talk to the CEO of Revolut and to people at Revolut, they almost like they home in on the people element because the founder has said so many uh, amazing things over the last few news cycles of the last few weeks that I just don't think journalists can leave that alone. They ask a little bit about Revolut and then they're like, tell me about your people policies or how how is it like to work there? And he came up with just some cracking quotes. Um, as long as something needs to be done, I can work 12 hours a day. I can work weekends and clock at least 85 hours. It's not a problem. It was intense on the trading floor, but but this is intense squared. But my all-time favourite quote, and I've been repeating it about the office today as a meme, um, he says that the average age of Revolut employees is 28. And that he, he said previously that he likes to hire people who want to grow themselves and that growing is always through pain. Oh dear, that is sinister, isn't it? Dun, dun, dun. I can see Valentina wanting to dive in here. Go. Such an annoying... It was just so annoying to hear this. It's just basically... It's it's like, you know, a classic uh, quote that you hear. It's so old-fashioned. You know, it's basically, I'm only going to hire people who are like me. You know, they don't have any dependents. They're someone who's 28 and can actually spend their, you know, their entire weeks, you know, working 85 hours. It's just ridiculous. You have no children. You're not someone who maybe has any kind of social... It's just... It's like to brag about it. It's like, get with the program. Mark Zuckerberg brags about the fact that he, you know, took two months off for paternity leave. That's something to be proud of. I'm very proud about the fact that I work for two founders who are both parents. I'm very proud about the fact that I we hire 20-year-olds. I mean, you also have people who 
have 20 years experience. It's not the fact that you've got the majority age of someone who's 28 and so therefore has was either in university or high school during the financial crisis. Well, then they can't possibly learn from any of the mistakes of the past. Very reassuring considering that you're working for a financial services company and we might get into recession after Brexit. So I love I love your passion. Wow. so much for the work-life balance right that everybody's now saying is a very important thing but it's in a way you can see how so this guy is in the news all the time right and he's rolling in this ridiculous quotes Uh, but you see how young people who are impressionable young people probably males you know with education looking at him and saying oh my god I'm going to be like him you know I want to go work for him I can imagine he's probably not paying them the top pack salary, right? And they're working what, seventeen, twenty hours it's got that a day boiler room and the feel, weekends, it? Yeah. you know, to make him richer, and he, he, you know, to benefit his company. I, I sort of um, the last sort of quote on this one, I think I, I defended slightly, but I think you know, it's just it sort of wants it's a problem, isn't it? But like the consistency of this, just the stupidity coming out on these quotes is but not. It is good, weird is it? that Revolut have got nine hundred thousand customers and they are looking to expand their business. Will they turn a profit? Will this be successful? Is it sustainable? Can you or will they? Will this behaviour inevitably lead to some sort of Uber-like crisis? Uh, you decide, listeners. That's that's a, that does sound like the trailer for the next episode. <laughs> tune in. Tune in next time to fintech imploding. <laughs> But you can you can see how when these twenty eight year olds you know no longer want to work weekends and twenty hours a day they leave but there is a whole next generation on twenty eight year olds who will be happy to take their place. That's the beauty of it. That's the model, right? Keep bringing in the youngsters. But what it yeah. says is that if you're you know if you're a young uh, man or woman who might be looking to you know maybe in your your mid, late thir- uh, late twenties or early thirties or older and you're looking to potentially start a family, it's basically like you're saying, well, you're just your work won't be as appreciated, and if you're not here working twelve hours, it's going to appear like you're not working as hard as everybody else it's just completely the wrong message and you're going to miss out on loads of great talent as a result and to a certain extent it goes against the uh the ethos and the pr about startup life but you might say this stuff's been around for a long time you join a magic circle law firm your life's over you know for a while you join an investment bank you join a big strats house you are probably putting in these kinds of hours and and i do wonder sometimes if we've got a bit wed and i'm playing devil's advocate a little here um, but i do wonder if we've kind of got wed to that silicon valley tv series you know startup life's great because we get flexibility and can work in great um, coffee shops and have beards and you know it's all great but Ultimately, it's also pretty brutal and pretty aggressive. There are plenty of people who are prepared to put in these hours and dedicate themselves to their work, and it's absolutely fine. It, it shouldn't be condoned or say, no, don't do that. But at the same time, it shouldn't be you know, put on a pedestal as yeah. this is the only thing exactly. that can be done to be successful. And also, I think the thing is with, you know, with the Magic Circle law firms or with the big investment banks, it was very much that sort of one liner, which was we'll work until the work gets done. It's not people are working 12 hours a day because they're so passionate about what they're doing and they absolutely love it. They don't even realize the time that goes by. Uh, But of course, if they wanted to do a normal nine to five job, then, you know, if they get the work done, then of course they can go. But to kind of take the same sort of view that, as I said, it's just sort of really old fashioned, the kind of stuff you heard in the 80s. It does feel very 80s, doesn't it? Oh, get shoulder pads. It's up there with like greed is good somebody (laughs) call gordon gecko indeed now let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors the financial times guides you through complex issues in divisive times don't settle for black and white when you need the full perspective turn to ft.com become a subscriber today 
Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors. We never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the last week on the show, but don't forget, you can head over to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we've discussed and many more besides. You can also sign up and join the discussion. Everything you've heard on the podcast, and you can even speak to us um, and many other fantastic names from the fintech world. Tell us what you thought of this week's stories. That's fintechinsidernews.com or just tweet the show at fintechinsiders on Twitter and find us on Facebook. Okay, on with the news. Uh, next story in Bloomberg, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fagan, uh, the He's prolific, isn't he? Or Gary Fagan submitting stories to fintechinsidernews.com. Eves Barnier says Brexit means banks lose EU passporting. Anybody want to take a shot at this one? I mean, yeah. So I think, um, well, it's quite interesting because obviously this year we've seen quite a few of the sort of new banks going, uh, trying to get their, their, their passports. So Starling announced in June that it received its banking passport into Ireland and that it'd be expanding into the Republic of Ireland. Um, and that's sort of the first step it, for its plans to, to sort of go into, into wider Europe. Um, Revolut announced earlier this month that it's applied for a European banking license uh, in Lithuania, which, if successful, will mean its depositors are covered under the European deposit protection, which is similar to the sort of FSTS protection you have here, um, £85,000, that would be €100,000. Um, so I think it's just interesting you're seeing more uh, more of these now new banks trying to, to uh, passport across Europe. But I think no one really knows what's happening. The amount of brinksmanship back and forth through the newspapers, behind the scenes, you know, it, inevitably the EU is pushing for Britain to pay, was it 60 billion euros to cover budgetary commitments and future liabilities, such as pensions for EU civil servants. Like the British public's going to absolutely love that. So on one hand, you've got the it's a big bad divorce and people are threatening things on each side oh the uk's amazing in financial services well don't think that that's going to be around if you don't pay your big you know your part of the alimony so i like who knows what's going to happen on that last week um fintech aside a news show we were talking about um david davis has actually suggested that uh, they're talking the uk is now talking about letting bankers travel freely and there's definitely a city lobbying coming from the banks at the moment to try and keep their peace as you say jason this story is not finished this is there's a lot of positioning going on but this doesn't help anyone it it actually increases the uncertainty seeing these headlines people making public statements of this bargaining chip well i'm going to say something extreme now i'm going to say something more extreme and i think as a public sitting back and watching this we're just getting less and less it only hurts the kids it does it's it arguing just hurts the kids all right uh, any other thoughts all right next story uh jason there's one here in the telegraph saying stalling takes the challenger fight to big banks with a european and a wholesale push two in one yeah i mean wow i'm um I'm, I'm somewhat conflicted on this because 
it's amazing that Starling is doing so much simultaneously. So this announcement essentially says that Starling, which is a new digital challenger bank in the UK, has been accepted into the EU payment system for large euro transactions, allowing it to process faster payments for major companies and banks, essentially on a new system that's called Target 2. But they've also won a payment services deal with, with a UK government entity, the Department for Work and Pensions, to help verify be- uh, benefit claimants for universal credit. So by my count, not only are they launching a current account in the UK and business banking and in Ireland uh, and providing essentially an, a route to access to faster payments, they've now connected to a European banking setup and they're doing a big project for the government. I mean, that's just a, a crazy amount of work. And there's a bunch of partners on the partner platform. Of course, the marketplace. Yeah. Well, the the, the government project um, would probably be, uh, well should I say that out loud, is likely to be some kind of train wreck and not through Stalin's fault, but just by the you know default, you know, that's what usually happens with all government projects because the universal credit is already in big trouble. Exactly. And um, that new system that they're rolling out for it, et cetera, et cetera. And who knows, you know, what might happen. Come next government, the universal credit might not even exist. So at least that one, they probably don't have too much to worry about. With everything else, I mean, Stalin is doing a lot, as you say, on many fronts. Um and they must be burning through cash like there is no tomorrow. I mean, you can see that they're all over the place on marketing, on PR. You know, they're talking at every conference. You know, they're advertising everywhere. They're publishing their thought leadership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. As an editor, I can see how much investment they're putting into just being out there. Combined with that, whether all that is going to pay off, it would be interesting to see. Uh, but have they, you know, taken on a bit too much? You know, are they going to run out of money? It's is investment? It's, it's pretty ambitious. Yeah. How many people are there? It's like 200 people. Like, how are they doing all of this with so few people? I don't think they're growing themselves through pain. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's why. I mean, I must admit, I mean, I've worked with Anne, with Anne Bowden, and she's the most driven, hardworking, like, like all hours just person I've ever met you know if anyone's going to make it succeed she is because she's a, literally a force of nature so if if that drives down through the organization we know Megan Kaywood we know some people there you know they're building a great team but it's a lot to take on so if they pull this off like wow you know they're they're expanding on all fronts simultaneously and making it work but it does seem like it it's a lot I mean I know you know from from working in this kind of area that even just launching that current account and making it work and launching all the services on it is is hard for a great team. But to do business banking and banking in Ireland and marketplace banking and so much in one go, that's um, that's really pushing. You it. increase your chances of failure by doing more things, don't you? Like doing one thing and doing it well means you increase your chances of success. Doing two things, your chances of success slightly decrease. Doing three and four and five, um, and it only takes one of them to fail for failure to become something the culture gets used to. And especially, like, so getting uh, into Target 2 is, is I guess, as part of the expansion plans. It's It feels like a compliance project. It feels like the sort of thing that people could do as a project. That one I sort of understand if you've got pan-European ambitions and, and you really want to, to grow the customers a- across that. But the universal credit alignment thing, that feels very much like corporate banking. And universal credit, as Tanya was saying, doesn't have a great PR reputation. So for international listeners, this is the social welfare program that the UK government operates. 
to be this darling of fintech, to be a brand that's young, that's seen as challenging those big old evil banks, but also now suddenly you're connected to this thing that is hated because it's not paying people on time and people aren't getting their uh, their checks to be able to pay for food or people are going without food because the system doesn't work. Being aligned to that, is that something you want? Well, I think that's that's the sort of thing the time will tell because if they can come in and actually rectify this, yeah, yeah, then then suddenly that sort of just re reignites the faith in the fintech sector and it shows that actually we can come in and, and really make a difference. I think what's interesting is that if you look at other sort of um, neo banks like Monzo, you know, who have customers in the hundreds of thousands, but then they've they've very much launched their current account first with you know a sort of the, the 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 beta version and there are a lot of things that still need work. Whereas Starling decided to wait and then launch a product that was actually you know pretty much there um, but then has you know tens of thousands of customers so very different in terms of the the growth and, and this is when we look at uh, when we look at atom when we look at tandem when we look at monzo installing we see different approaches and what's interesting to me is those different approaches all have pros and cons to them and it's hard to say which of those is right but the one thing for certain is they're all doing interesting stuff well these banks that you mentioned they all have a very generic um kind of approach to the market in terms of their audience. Yes, like they're all aimed at the tech-savvy digital millennials or people who like technology, that sort of thing. They don't have a specific niche that they can go, like Oak North, for instance, you know, like we are going to an SME, the SME market or we are going to be an agency bank, you know, like ClearBank. So it's pretty difficult to then try to have a sustainable business model beyond just, oh, look, we have a wonderful app, you know, and you have to think also... Uh, a bank has to make money. If all you have is a current account, which is a free current account at the moment, or some of them I think are introducing now fees for the current account, which po possibly will turn people off. If you, all you're offering is a current account, how as a business you're going to make money of it? I think, it, I think it's hard from a brand dilution perspective, though, isn't it? So if, you're, if it's very difficult for people to articulate what your brand stands for because your brand stands for so many different things, then it becomes very difficult to actually relate to, as you say, relate to a group, you know? At least if it's, um, you know, somebody like Loot, you can say, well, Loot stands for giving students better financial services. Whereas actually, increasingly, it's, I don't, I don't know which bit of Starling they think is most important. What's the what's the trunk and what's the branches type thing in this scenario here? And actually, you know, with uh, notifications about them coming into SME, them going into all these different things, I just think, you know, in with a backdrop of a company that's lost what four CTOs over the last three years, you know, is that a stress sign of the problems that are kind of happening there, or should we probably move on? Well, I mean, I was I was at Starling at the beginning. You know, I helped kind of. Uh, make the application and kind of push this through and and I'm pulling for them on this because it has the opportunity of being an epic story sure they're they're pushing it they're really going after a large number of you know different areas uh, but equally that's that's ambitious that's really you know pushing something along so uh, so I do wish them the best I remember when Facebook IPO'd, a lot of people said that $38, that's ambitious. They're never going to make it. This is just going to be a great way to lose money. And now you sit and look at them at, what, $170? Sometimes ambition isn't a bad thing. It's actually a very, very good thing. Uh, next story in City AM, submitted to Fintech Insider News by, well, Val Christensen. Um, the story here is digital challenger Atom Bank are seeking to raise millions more in funding from investors, including BBVA, Woodford, and Tosca Fund. So it kind of leads on from the last story a little bit, Atom are raising a lot of cash. 
Yeah, I mean, this, uh, so they raised 83 million, um, 83 million, sorry, in uh, in Q1 this year um, from existing investors, um, bringing the total amount that they've raised to just shy of 220 million pounds. Um, and then they obviously had a 30 million of debt raised from the British Business Bank over the summer. So they have raised a lot of uh, capital. It seems like it's at a time when a lot of uh, challenge banks are actually um, raising money. So Monzo uh, has just raised uh, 71 million and wants a further 30 million. So they're, they're currently... Um, uh, hiring for a, a crowdfund lead, I think is how they, they've described it on the website, uh, to do the largest crowdfund in history to kind of beat the Brewdog, uh, Brewdog record. Um, Starling's looking at raising uh, 40 million. Uh, we just actually closed a, a 244 million round, well, a round in primary and secondary, and that was including a Tosca fund. Boom. Uh, nice. <laughs> a second round of applause there. Yeah. Well at a 1.3 billion valuation. Uh, but, you know, I mean, so it's, it seems like it's a time of year when a lot of uh, challenges banks are are raising money but i think you know the the, the one of the, the points is that it has to be made clear what they're actually going to do with this money it is the season for raising money uh there's they seem to be lending a lot that their strategy is we've got a mortgage product and they're getting into lending this lending thing seems like a, a good a good business model it's like the banks have been doing that for a while and it, it's 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 a good way to make money um, but to take vc money and just lend it straight out is that the only answer i, I just don't i don't see the the value that's what, like, what are they doing with all of this money? Like, we're hearing like you know soaring noises from outside of the the castle type thing. But like, what is actually happening here? What are the, what have they created and built and took to market? Of all the fintech companies, maybe it's the one that's not happening inside the tech bubble, right? So inside the fintech bubble, we don't see Atom, but that doesn't say that they're not managing to lend. But then also, it's hard to see in, and it's different because Tandem, Monzo, and Starling are so different. You you feel you can get a card, you can get hold of them, you can use their products. Nobody seems to be using the Atom product inside the bubble. Is that just because we're snobs and we think Atom's too good and they're selling to an audience that's not us? But is anybody in? The, I guess that just I'm almost going to validate your point, but. Of the people in the room, has anybody got an Atom account that they use? Oh, that we use. I got an Atom account, but I can't use it. I can't deal with the facial recognition. It, I, I don't know what they're doing. So, who are their customers? Like, if if you're listing people, who are you? Who are you? Get in touch at hello at eleven fscouk <laughs> They must have quite a few customers, but in terms of what where the money's going. Do you know the setup, the tech setup that Atom Bank has? I mean, they have pretty much every system under the sun, starting from a massive core banking system, uh, which doesn't come cheap, uh, which is from a third party sort of developer and is quite an old product. And then it's surrounded by a myriad of other big, expensive systems. So put all together, that costs a pretty penny. So they built the, a VT rocket, but... Um, they built it again, but it's 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 that it's a different strategy. You know the the way that challenger banks start, or kind of one of two ways: you you dominate payments, you dominate forex, you dominate something. You take the Revolut view, you take the Monzo route, you, uh, route, you go after that that approach, or you do the uh, saving and lending thing. You do the maturity transformation. You do savings bonds, and Atom are like top of the league, or have been previously on the whole. You know savings bonds route. So if you want to put some money aside for a period of time, you want the best deal, then in it goes. 
And what do you do with that money? You leverage it and you lend it out. You do mortgages, you do small business lending. Would you see that? Well, if you went for a mortgage, maybe, or if you were a small business going for lending. Exactly. So in the end, if if it's your mum who's looking for a, you know, a better, the best savings deal, and she has a whole load of cash that she wants to to, to get the best interest rate from, then away she goes. Does she care about the app? Probably not. You know, and and then that conversion into the 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 lending side, into the asset side, is is how they make money. So it, it is a very different strategy. But you've seen, is it Tinkoff in um, in Russia go for that route, and and it can be hugely profitable. That that asset to liability uh, view. But but they've got so they've got fifteen thousand customers that have what was the balance that they had. Seven, seven, eight hundred million. Was it? Is that right? No, nine hundred million for fifteen thousand customers. So each person who's saving has a has a balance of sixty thousand. Like that, it just seems completely out of whack in terms of actually what the like the general save. Like either they've got like has Will I Am put all of his money into this as savings type thing? Is does this account for what the crazy like off the scale thing? Like something just doesn't make sense to me in this. Well, I'd say probably the only sort of counter to that is that they have been offering uh, for a large portion of the time two percent, right? Two percent fixed for a fixed bond of twelve months, which is you know about thirty basis points higher than the next best on the on the table. Um, we've always taken the view at Oak North that it's sort of, you know, you can actually be fourth or fifth on the table and still lap up quite a bit of those deposits because let's say someone sells a house for, you know, three, four hundred thousand pounds. If they want to have the FSCS protection, they might put the first 85k with Atom or 60k with Atom. And they might put the next batch with, you know, RCI Bank, the next with Paragon, the next maybe with Oak North. And, and therefore they are taking advantage of all the money being uh, safe. But it means that we're then, you know, offering a still very competitive 1.6, 1.7, uh, but we're then paying, you know, quite a bit less. And, it, and they've gone shopping on the price comparison sites. They've made sure their money's put away with deposit. I mean, there it is. I think this is the sort of thing that is a rare transaction, but in a, in a country the size of the UK does happen. They're high value transactions. You just got to w- use a very weird app to to get that insane rate. But this this teaser rate sort of thing that we've seen, we saw with um, Santander when they came into the UK, we've seen a lot of banks do this and then it flips, but it does help, seem to help you grow your customer base when you when you come into market. I wonder if it's going to be something that's sustainable. Well, it's interesting to see what their next uh, products will be. Like, where do they go from there? Do they get into credit cards and current accounts? Or really, are they just a savings to lending machine and actually make their money on that, that point? Well, Mark Mullen said um, earlier this year that they're definitely not doing current accounts this year and probably won't be in 2018 either. So, uh, you know, that was obviously when they first came to market, that was very much something that they said they were going to do. And I think they've maybe found, you know, quite a nice niche with some of the other uh, neobanks aren't quite playing, you know, mortgages and and a bit of SME lending. Uh, It'd be interesting to see how much of the the split between the book there. But um, yeah, so I think they probably found, uh, you know, a nice niche where actually the the Monzo's tandems, Starlings of this world aren't quite playing yet. Being another lender with a, an attractive rate in the market seems to be a great business to be in. Can I give a bit of a uh, shout out to Will I Am? Because uh, we, well, we do this fintech. <sighs> I'm, I'm trying so desperately to get him on the podcast. By the oh, way, he would be for not. He would be the best person on the podcast. Uh, we do a. It's very silly. We do a fintech power list that measures your social media score. Stop tweeting me to change the algorithm. I'm not changing it. But some genius added Will I Am. He's going to be top of the league next week by by a country <laughs> mile. So. Uh, most influential person in fintech, uh, Will I am. There's going to be a bunch of influencers just. But, so, hot, but, but, but if I go and add Elon Musk, founder of PayPal, or one of the founders, the, does that beat Will I am? 
Ah, uh, we'll have to see. So. <laughs> oh my goodness, I think <laughs> who can we get onto that list let's put Justin Bieber on there because he something I don't he probably, I'm sure she uh, paid for something at, yeah, he paid for something yeah, at he, some he point he right? used a credit card at some point but all by himself probably involved in ICO somewhere along the line yeah that's true <laughs> which bank do you reckon uh, Justin Bieber would be kind of the, the face of it sounds like they start of a joke is this like a, <laughs> uh, who's there <laughs> uh, Next story is from Curve's website, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fagan. Curve, the card company, is now available to all, apparently. I love Curve. I'm an absolute fangirl over Curve. It is what I use for everything. Um, I hate this story because it means that I'm not going to get all my uh, referrals that I keep giving out now that it's available to everyone, which is... But if anybody does want to, my referral code is E-R-E-N-T, so please put Which that in. Which also happens to be his password. <laughs> <laughs> so explain the value proposition right. for Curve. Do you know what? I've got, I've got my card. It is my go-to card at the moment. Okay. So why would I want it? I Sell it to me. Right. I, I, they really should pay me. Right. Curve, on it, you've got the app. You load up all of your cards onto the app. And you choose which card, and then your Curve card becomes that card. Okay. So this can become my NatWest credit card, it can become my Monzo card, it can become my Revolut card, it can become any card. Right. And Contactless does the same kind of exchange rate. So if I go abroad, I use this, and it then comes out my NatWest account. I don't get the charges, which is phenomenal. But best of all, it's all, um, you can go back in time. So I can use this and have it on, say, my Tesco credit card. And I can th- say, ah, oh, actually, that was a business expense. So I can then go back in time and it will never come off the Tesco card. It will come off instead uh, my uh, business account. It's a time-travelling card. It is. And it updates in zero in real time as well. Well, we've, we've had um, Shashar on the um, CEO of Curve uh, a bunch of times now, actually, on the, on the podcast. And actually, we interviewed him for the Zero series that we did as well, when the, the uh, integration with Zero happened as well. It seems to be really, really taking off. And it's, a, you know, it's fascinating that they're bringing it to uh, retail, not just the commercial space. Because you know, having those abilities to actually just step back and say, actually, I did that wrong. I want to move that from here to here. I, I think gives people the, the sort of grace of you know, actually making mistakes rather than, whoops, I shouldn't have put that on my current account and it's caused me a problem. I, I guess it's, I still don't quite fully understand how they carry the cost of that in the middle uh, or how they then do some of the reverse charges across Arbitrage, things. Arbitrage, baby. And I'm sure. But it's, it's smart. You know, it's a, again, it's a, it's a different take on fintech. You know, it's not about making the right decision now. It's about know. making the decision later on. Yeah, and but that's I, smart. I don't know that I, uh, I buy the need to have, and I know you do, and, and that's what fascinates me because for me, taking two or three pieces of plastic isn't that much more difficult than taking one piece so would i download an app and use a card specifically to replace you know three or four cards that i might might take out i'm not sure that i would um and as david says there's there's a there's a cost associated with the difference of interchange fees between making the transaction on one side and then paying for the transaction on the other so actually like there's a cost to each transaction Uh, so i'm i'm interested how in all that that plays out well, so, I mean, you know, I need to use my Monzo card because that's how I pick up guys in bars, right? <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently. Um, Curve is the new Monzo. And on, <laughs> and on that bombshell of how Val picks up people in bars, uh, that wraps up another news show. Uh, thank you very much to our guests. Uh, Val, where can people find out more about you? Uh, yes, so if you're a uh, UK business looking for a loan, then you can visit us at www.oaknorth.com. And if you want to connect with me directly, then I'm on Twitter at Val Christensen or on LinkedIn. And Tanya. 
Uh, well, I edit Banking Technology, which is a fintech publication about all things fintech and surrounding areas. So it's www.bankingtech.com. So all news analysis, gossip and more. Ooh. Uh, what about you, Jason? Ooh, good question. At Jason Bates is probably the best place to find me on Twitter. And David? Uh, at David Brayer. So as well, uh, Jason's actually, as is Simon and Chris, uh, all on IMDb now as well. So, uh, oh, yeah. of course, the one and only Ali. But but if if you are also on IMDb, Ali, where would I find you? Oh, I, I am on IMDb. I am at Ali Patterson on Twitter, and uh, I run uh, fintech.finance. Great website and great publication. Um, and you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Don't forget, 11FS, the people who bring you this podcast, are a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next-generation finance propositions for our clients, taking startup approach to making a difference. Come and talk to us at 11FS team on Twitter or at hello at 11FS.com if you want to send us an email. If you like what you've heard this week, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.